What are things that in your life are sure or certain to come to you? No matter who you are or where you are or what you are, what are things that no matter what are certain to come into your life? Well, most, many people would tell you that there are two absolutely certain things in life, right? Death and taxes. <laughs> I mean, taxes are a lot of things. Annoying, expensive, burdensome, but they're also definitely inevitable. Everyone is taxed. I mean, we're even taxed after we die. <laughs> we can't avoid taxes. Neither can any of us avoid death. Death comes to all men and women, boys and girls. And we saw this a couple weeks ago when we studied a story that Jesus told about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus and where they ended up. And it doesn't matter how rich you are or how popular you are or how healthy you are or are not. Death comes to all of us. Our bodies will wear out and pass away one day. We can't escape the tax man or the grim reaper. Okay, no matter how hard we might try. Are there any other things that are sure to come in life? Well, sure. Aging. All of us are aging by the minute. We all grow older by the minute. And the effects of aging accompany that. Gray hair or wrinkles or aches or arthritis. We all... We could also say that good times and bad times are certain to come in life to everyone, no matter who you are. We all go through ups and downs and peaks and valleys and joys and pains. This too shall pass refers to both good and bad things. Life is inevitably mixed with good and bad and both will come to you. You could probably add some other things to that list, of course, too. But did you know that the Bible would add one thing in particular to the list of certainties in life? And this is something that we really need to be aware of that will come to us all. Something we need to be prepared to face and something we need to be ready to fight. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to open the Bible and see what this thing that is certain to come into your life is. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we look into the pages of your word that you would speak to us afresh, that we would know these are your words to us personally, corporately. We pray that you would bring conviction, you bring encouragement. We pray that above all, we go from here knowing your love for sure. We know how much you love us and what that means for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Luke 17. Luke 17, this is on page 876, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Luke 17, today resumes our journey in the Gospel of Luke, one of the true historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In chapter 17, we're in the middle of a number of passages in a row of Jesus' teachings. He's teaching all kinds of people about all kinds of things. Here, he begins with a sober warning, warning us about the thing that is certain to come in everyone's life. Read with me, Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin 
are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. So what is it that comes to us all, guaranteed? Temptations to sin, right? Temptations to sin, we saw that right there. Temptations to sin are sure to come. We're going to look at this a little bit more closely in a minute. But first, just note a couple things. Note that he's talking to his disciples again here. Uh, in the last couple passages, he had been addressing the Pharisees and the religious leaders, all about money and marriage and the law and eternity. And so here, Luke is making a point. Jesus is shifting gears. He's once again addressing his disciples or his closest followers, those who would one day carry on his work after he died. Now, some scholars think that the first 10, ten verses in chapter 17, we're going to look at a number of them today, they think that this section is really just a collection of four short, independent spurts of Jesus' teaching, almost like Proverbs, random little things put together. But I do think that they're related at least loosely related, and they flow from one to the other, as we'll see. Today we're going to be looking at three of these four spurts, as you might call them, of teaching. Okay? The first one is all about temptation. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. So they're inevitable, like death and taxes. Temptation. After we become Christians, though, Sometimes I think, uh, we think that we'll be really good people right away. That we won't struggle. And so, we're surprised when temptations crop up in our lives frequently. Maybe just as frequently or even more frequently than before. I mean, think about it. We act surprised that lust or porn or sexual sin seem attractive to us still. Or we're baffled by how hard it is to fight our outbursts of anger, or our gluttony, or our coveting what friends and family have, or our desire to gossip or slander. We're amazed at how easy it is to still lie to others. Just come right out. Or how easy it is to disrespect our parents or to be lazy. And then, after we face all these temptations, we get confused and we wonder, why would God not protect us from these things? Why would he not protect us from temptation? Doesn't he want us to fail or fall? We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus tells us right here, very frankly, temptations to sin are sure to come. Expect them. Be ready for them. Don't assume that you're above being tempted. You're not. And no one is exempt from temptation. Think about it. Not even Jesus was. So, I mean, we should pray for temptation, for protection from temptation. We should put on the armor of God. There are many things we can do to be ready to fight sin when it comes. But temptation is coming, and many times it will be unavoidable. A few years ago, I was driving down a, a country road around 10 or 11 at night when about 50 meters down the road, I noticed something moving right in the middle of the road. And it was dark, so it's hard to tell what it was, maybe a cat or a raccoon or something. But I saw it and I started slowing down right away. And 
giving it plenty of time, whatever it was, to move out of the way. I figured it would be scared off by this large vehicle, loud, noisy lights coming down the road at it. When I got to about 10 or 15 meters away, pretty close, I recognized what it was. as a skunk. And it wasn't making any effort to get out of the way. In fact, this is what it was doing. I'm not exaggerating, okay? He was in the middle of the road, running in circles. <laughs> what was I supposed to do in that situation, right? If I came to a screeching halt, what would happen? i get sprayed for sure. If I tried to swerve out of the way, I not only would have endangered my own safety, who knows, I probably still would have hit it, right? It was circling. If I kept going, though, I mean, there's a pretty good chance as well that I'd hit it. But there's also a chance that maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'd scurry out of the way. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm not one to cry over roadkill. <laughs> but obviously, no one ever wants to hit a skunk, right? Problem was, I didn't have time to think through my options like I just did here. I had maybe two seconds tops. So I took my chances, and I just kept going and started praying. Please don't hit him. Please don't hit him. Please don't bump. <laughs> so I was the one to, this time at least, leave the sweet aroma for many neighborhoods miles around that night. <laughs> but in telling you this story, my point is this. Sometimes... There will be skunks in your road, and they'll be unavoidable. Okay? Yes, you should take precautions to try to stay out of temptation's way. Yes, you should do all you can do to avoid even the temptation to sin. But don't expect to never or even rarely face temptation, it'll come. Your sinful nature is defeated, but it can still be strong. As you all know, the devil still got it out for you. And the world's pull can still be quite potent or intoxicating at times. But I think that if you're forewarned about this, like Jesus was warning his disciples, if you're forewarned, you can better equip yourself to fight temptation when it does come with the Lord's help. 1 Corinthians 10 12 to 13 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, the warning here about Inevitable temptation is clearly implied in the passage. However, it's also not the main point that Jesus is trying to make here. His main point was a stronger warning about not tempting other people to sin. Here's how I put it. Here's the first point for your notes. The gravity and results of sin should dissuade God's disciples from ever tempting others to sin. The gravity and results of sin should deter us. It should prevent us 
from ever tempting other people to sin. Let's read again verse 1 and we'll go into verse 2. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, as we've seen in other places in Luke, the word woe that Jesus used pretty often is not as much a denunciation as much as it is just an expression of sorrow. Like, he's shaking his head. Woe to the one that brings temptation. Jesus isn't condemning them here. He's lamenting their condition, their condemnation. And why is he so distressed about this? Because hell's awaiting them. Literally. Jesus says that you'd be better off being tied to a millstone and thrown into the ocean than to lead other people astray towards sin. Now, do you know what a millstone is? So a millstone is a very large, extremely heavy stone that was used in mills. I think there'll be a picture up there. Usually they'd be used in pairs to grind up grains like wheat. And you can just imagine how heavy one of those would be. Right? Hundreds of pounds. Now, imagine being thrown into the water tied to one of those things. No one would survive that. I mean, if it didn't break your neck on the way down, you'd never be able to fight the enormous weight of a millstone sinking to the bottom of water. Swimming would be impossible. You would absolutely positively drown in a very short time. Now, this was supposedly sometimes used as a form of execution in Jesus' day, so they would have been familiar with this picture. But this type of execution was meant to be equally horrifying and humiliating. Okay, it wasn't... At least sometimes, if if someone was killed, you get to bury them later. Give them a proper send-off. But this, you sink to the bottom of the ocean, there wouldn't even be a chance to retrieve the body later for a proper burial. I mean, the criminal would be permanently chained to the bottom of the ocean. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to choose ways I'd like to die, death by drowning would be near the absolute bottom of the list. So much pain and panic, right? It might go relatively quick, but it would be a terrible, awful way to die. I don't say any of this to disturb you or give you nightmares, okay? I describe this to help you feel the weight of what Jesus was saying here. Look what he says in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, this horrific death would be a good thing compared to what would happen to someone causing others to sin. How is that possible? Because like I said, hell was waiting for them. 
we only understood the horrors of hell, we would rather suffer a thousand terrible deaths. We only grasped it. Remember in the previous passage we looked at with the, where the rich man ended up in eternal torment. He begged, begged that his loved ones would get the opportunity to be spared from hell. Didn't want anyone else to have to face it. And hell is something that we should be desperate to see other people saved from, not sent to. <laughs> but instead, some people are helping others to ride their coattails into hell. Or they're encouraging others to get on the bus that they're driving straight there. You're starting to see why Jesus was so severe about this? Damning yourself is one thing. But damning other people as well. It's a whole other ballgame. Especially considering who was being led toward hell. Jesus said, if you notice, it would be better if a millstone is hung around your neck, thrown into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now we might think, well, what little ones is he talking about? Where'd they come from? They're not talked about here. We're not told exactly, but Jesus actually makes the same statement about having a millstone thrown, put around your neck and thrown into the water back in Matthew 18, which is where he called a young child over to himself, placed him on his lap and said, unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So with that context, it's likely that Jesus was referring to children here. When he said these little ones, you're leading these little ones astray. But I think this can also properly apply to anyone who's not maybe as far along as you. So, younger people in general than yourself. Mentally, physically, or emotionally vulnerable people. Anyone under your authority or your leadership. Maybe baby Christians. Or your children. Your grandchildren. Nieces and nephews. The onus of these verses is especially on parents and authority figures and leaders and teachers. If you have influence over someone, you have got to be uber careful about the influence that you exert upon them. But whether or not we hold authority or leadership over someone else, we all influence others, don't we? Our actions every day, we influence those around us. And there are so many ways that we might motivate or cause other people around us to sin. I mean, this is really condemning if you think about it. Some people may outright encourage or, or pressure others to sin, peer pressure. It's not that bad. Or everybody's doing it. You don't want to miss out, do you? And it's not all blatant encouragement towards sin, though. Sometimes we might downplay or try to soften sin, make it not as bad as it is. We excuse it. We essentially remove the offense of sin against a holy God. 
Make it palatable. Sometimes we join our culture in redefining sin. What is or is not morally wrong. Sometimes we might promote sin by promoting a certain product or movie or book or show, or by simply talking about activities that could be a stumbling block for other people. Sometimes we provoke someone to sin by irritating them or egging them on in some way. And sometimes, let's be honest, we exemplify sin by unapologetically partaking in it. All the above are ways that we can directly or indirectly cause others to stumble into sin. Especially, especially those who are impressionable and vulnerable to our influence. We've got to take this seriously. We need a more biblical view of sin. We need a a truer heavier opinion of sin. No sin is trivial or petty or insignificant or silly or trifling or funny or minor in any way. Listen to this lengthier quote from R.C. Scroll. He says, We have diminished the significance of sin itself. Sin is communicated in our day in terms of making mistakes or of making poor choices. But Scripture describes sin as a debt, an expression of enmity, and as a crime. Even the, the slightest sin that a creature commits against his Creator does violence to the Creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Our actions of rebellion and transgression of the law of God are not seen by him as mere misdemeanors. Rather, they are felonious. They are criminal in their impact. If we take the reality of sin seriously in our lives, we see that we commit crimes against a holy God and against his kingdom. Our crimes are not virtues, they are vices. And any transgression of a holy God is vicious by definition. It is not until we understand who God is that we gain any real understanding of the seriousness of our sin. You get that last part? It is not until we understand who God is that we gain any real understanding of the seriousness of our sin. This is the gravity of sin. Do you feel the weight? This points us to our absolute desperate need for a Savior. Given this heavy weight of sin, it's interesting how Jesus continues to talk with his disciples. Where he goes next. See, he moves straight from talking about sin to talking about forgiveness. that neat? This makes logical sense, right? If sin is so grave, then forgiveness has to have that much gravity as well. 
I mean, it means that forgiveness doesn't come cheaply. Okay? It's not so easy to offer forgiveness for sin. Because they're really, really, really bad. Forgiveness isn't cheap. We have to avoid, I think, personally, the danger of taking sin more seriously, which is a good thing, but then making forgiveness harder to attain, which is a bad thing. Jesus says, as he continues, verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So now, you see, he's talking about when others sin against us. Not when we necessarily sin against God, when others sin against us, unprovoked. More specifically, he's speaking about when a brother sins against us. So this is a spiritual brother or sister, a fellow disciple of Christ. Okay? Sadly, Christians do tend to sin against each other a lot, don't we? This is very practical teaching. Because this situation happens frequently. We sin against each other all the time. Our natural tendency, though, is when, we sin, when we're sinned against, is the opposite of forgiveness. We'd rather fight back, or we'd rather get angry, or complain about it, or hold a grudge. The last thing we want to do when someone hurts us is to let them off easy. Right? But God's ways are higher than our ways. Here's the main point from verse 3 and 4. When others do sin, God's forgiveness should inspire correction, repentance, and forgiveness in us. God's forgiveness should provoke us to correct sin, repent of sin, and forgive others' sins. Jesus introduces this topic by saying, Pay attention! Pay attention to yourselves! Why? Maybe because it's really easy to hold grudges or develop bitterness and then ignore those things. Or maybe because maintaining healthy and godly relationships takes attentiveness and work. I mean, we've got to pay attention to our sins. We've got to work hard to repent and forgive of them. Hence, pay attention to yourselves. Look inside yourself. Do a heart checkup. Okay, see how you're doing. Don't slack off on this. Keep checking your heart diligently. Hebrews 12 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I I like those verses. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for it. See to it that everyone is shown grace. That no root of bitterness springs up. Pay attention to yourselves. How do we do this? There are three actions spoken of here in Luke 17. The three I gave you in your notes. Read in verse 3. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, 
rebuke him. So the first response to sin is to rebuke the sin, to correct the sinner. Next, if he repents, forgive him. So the second one, the person who has sinned against is supposed who sinned is supposed to then repent. And finally, we forgive repeatedly if need be. See that in verse four. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, we're going to look briefly at correction and repentance, but Jesus' emphasis in these verses is on the forgiveness. That's where he's focusing. So first, correction or rebuking. How should we rebuke a sinner? Someone sins against you. How do you rebuke him? Well, this is not a license to go about correcting every sin we see in everyone all the time. Okay, it's not that. Rob, you've got a serious greed problem. <laughs> right? Or, Sally, you are totally pigging out. You've got to back off that stake. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay? Remember, this is speaking of sin between Christians and someone sins against you. And specifically, is when someone sins against you, not other people. You're not going around just pointing out fingers all the time, rebuking everyone you see. So you can't just go on a willy-nilly campaign of pointing all these things out. But what this does tell me is that you have a right to speak up if you're sinned against. See that? You don't need to stay silent. You don't need to just grin and bear it. You can admit you're hurt. Now, this doesn't mean you gossip about it or slander them or complain about it or just air all their dirty laundry. You know, go on the offensive. No. But if someone sins against you, go and tell them so. Admit that they hurt you. Now, I want to turn this around a bit. I want you to think about how do you respond if someone confronted you with a sin? What would you do? If they came up and said, I think you've done wrong here. You've hurt me. You've hurt God. The human response is to get defensive, right? Maybe try to start making excuses or, or shift the blame. But the godly response see here is to humbly accept the correction and then repent. If you did something wrong, even if it was small, confess it. Apologize. Say three of the hardest words in the English language. I was wrong. And then repent. Turn away from the sin. Turn back to Christ. Resolve to live your life differently. Make any necessary changes you have to make so it doesn't happen again. Temptation inevitably comes, and we're all still sinners. So until Christ returns, there will still be sin inside this church. There will still be sin in your relationships. But the health of of your spiritual life, the health of your relationships, and the health of our church critically depends on our responses to sin. I pray 
that we would be a church full of disciples that are willing to accept correction. That when we're confronted by sin, we'd be humble enough to quickly confess and repent of that sin. And then when someone does repent, I pray that we're even quicker to forgive. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now you might wonder, well, should we forgive someone if they don't repent first? I answer that you might not need to publicly forgive them right away, but you do need to forgive them in your heart. You need to be ready and willing to outwardly forgive them as soon as they do repent. Notice the repetitive nature of true forgiveness here. In verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. We have to be ready to forgive someone no matter how many times they sin against us. Even if it's seven times in the same day. Day. Okay, let's give an example here. Let's say that I say some hurtful, slanderous words about you. Drag your name through the mud. Talk about you behind your back. Say some really nasty things. And then you overhear them. Or maybe you overhear them second or third hand. And you're rightfully hurt by them. But then, when I'm confronted with my sin, you or someone else comes and say, you've sinned, I seek you out, and I repent of that sin. I say, I was wrong, I sinned against you, please forgive me. What would you do? Would you forgive me? I hope so. I think you, most of us probably would. It might be difficult, but probably be willing to forgive there. But then, let's say about an hour later, I go out and do the exact same thing again. And once again, I realize I'm wrong. So I go and repent. Would you forgive me a second time? Maybe. A bit harder, right? Say, okay, I forgive you. Please don't do it again. But then let's say I do go do it again. And I say some really unkind things about you. And we repeat the cycle. Again. And again. And again. And again. Seven times in the same day. Do you still feel like forgiving me? Let's be honest. I, I, I doubt it. You'd be hurt, you'd be confused, you'd be frustrated. Somewhere along the line, you'd probably just snap, like, what is wrong with you? Like, why can't you just stop? You can't just keep coming back and assuming I'm going to forgive you. But then Jesus says these shocking words. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Not you can forgive, not you should forgive, 
but you must forgive. In other words, forgiveness isn't optional for Christians. It's an obligation. Withholding forgiveness for any reason is a distinctly un-Christian thing to do. In fact, given Jesus' words about unforgiveness, is actually a sin itself. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Forgiving someone does not mean you have to always forget what they've done. Okay? And I'm not saying we should excuse sinful behavior. Not at all. I'm not saying that a sinner should not have to face the consequences of their sin. Sometimes they do have to face consequences. Neither am I saying that we should merely endure sinful abuse or enable repeated abuse against us. Okay? We should do all that we can do to prevent sin in the first place. Take precautions. Seek out help. Sometimes we need to remove ourselves from a sinful situation altogether. And in the worst cases, the extreme ones, it's definitely not wrong to involve authorities. It's not wrong to seek out justice, especially for your protection. But none of this changes the fact that where there is true repentance, there must be be forgiveness. A number of other objections often automatically spring into our minds concerning forgiveness. I think, well, we must always forgive? That is way too hard to do. And I say, yes, this is extremely hard to do. This is not easy teaching. <laughs> right? Feel the weight of it. But it is something that I believe we actually can do with the help of the Holy Spirit. As we follow Christ, we can learn to forgive. We also think, well, you're saying to forgive and forgive again, but but offenders, especially repeat offenders, don't deserve forgiveness. Again, you're right. They don't deserve forgiveness. But forgiveness has never been about deserving it. We never deserved God's forgiveness. Still others of us might object. Pastor Matt, you just just don't understand. You don't understand how badly I've been hurt. No, I probably don't. And I don't want to make light of your hurts or your heartaches. But while I don't understand, I guarantee you Jesus does. We hurt him far more than any human has ever been hurt. And yet, he forgave and he forgives. And we'll forgive again. Guarantee you Jesus understands. This is why I said that God's forgiveness 
should inspire these responses to sin. God's forgiveness is not explicitly in this passage, but it's very much implicit. It is implied, it underlies everything else Jesus says here. We wonder, like, what in the world could ever motivate us or obligate us to forgive repeatedly sins against us? And the only answer is that God has forgiven us of the same, and more, and worse, and more frequently. Why forgive again and again? Because this is what God does for us again and again and again. Remember that as Jesus said these words, he was on his way, making his way toward Jerusalem, where he would be betrayed and arrested, tried, tortured, mocked, killed. Why? Because he loved sinners who needed forgiveness. Why Jesus die? He loved sinners who needed forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no true forgiveness of sin. So he shed his blood. And now because Jesus died and rose again, we today can be completely forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. you haven't experienced this before, if you haven't been forgiven yet, I encourage you today to run. Don't walk. Run to the cross. Run to find the incredible forgiveness that you so desperately need. We all need it. For all of us, if there's only one thing you remember today, I'd say please remember the grace of God. Why should we repent, confess and repent of our sin? Because Jesus died for them. Why should we be ready, readily forgive sin in others? Because Jesus died for them. And how can we readily forgive sins in others? Because Jesus died for us. Remember the grace of God. Now, I already admitted, this is not an easy teaching. But if you find this difficult to accept, you're not the only one. So did the disciples. As they heard Jesus say these words the first time. Look what they said. Jesus says, if he turns you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And now, if you truly feel the weight of what Jesus was teaching about forgiveness, then the disciples' response makes total sense. 
You may feel the same way. They found this hard to understand and hard to accept, so they interrupted Jesus with a request. Lord, increase our faith. Help us understand. Help us accept. Help us believe. Help us forgive. And Jesus responded, verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, here's a question. How does faith, how does what Jesus says here, relate to his previous teaching about sin and forgiveness? Daryl Bach explains how you can connect these things. He says, Jesus' insistence that forgiveness be granted continually is a hard teaching. So hard, in fact, that the disciples ask for an increase in faith. Jesus responds that such faith, even though small in size, can accomplish great things. Okay, so here's the last point for today, which I glean from this. A growing faith in God provides the needed power to respond to these things in a godly way. Growing faith in God provides the needed power to respond to these things in a godly way. You want to respond in a a right and godly manner to the sin in your life, the sin in other people's lives, the sins against you, sins you see. You don't need more resolve. You don't need more diligence. You need more faith. Growing faith in God provides the needed power to respond to these things in a godly way. Disciples say... Increase our faith. The Lord says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus was basically saying that even a small amount of faith is powerful. Now, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, about the size of a sesame seed, you could... Work miracles. You could order nature around. You could tell a tree to uproot itself out of the ground, walk on over to the ocean, jump into the water, and replant itself there. And it would do it. Now, when I hear verses like this, I often feel a bit bothered by them. I think things like, wow, I must not have very much faith then. Because I sure don't see many mulberry trees being uprooted around me. I do think this can serve as an indictment against the general weakness of our faith. Does this verse mean that all of our faith is pretty weak? Yeah, probably. However, Jesus didn't mean for this to discourage us. He actually meant it to encourage us. This was his answer to the disciples' request for an increase in faith. Now, you think Jesus wanted the disciples to grow in faith? Yeah, absolutely. He wanted their faith to be stronger, so he wanted to encourage them. He'd tell them how. So how is this encouraging? Like, if you had a little bit of faith, you could do this. Well, I think he was trying to show just how powerful Weak faith in a powerful God could be. You see, the amount of faith doesn't matter that much. 
It's the object of faith that matters. Michael Horton says, Faith isn't justifying because it's virtuous, but because of its object, which is Christ. Even weak faith clings to a strong Savior. That is so key. Even the weakest faith in Christ gets the same strong Savior. That is good news. <laughs> That's what I want to leave you with today before we transition to the Lord's Supper. The, the power of faith in our God. Okay? When we have faith, and they, this just ties it all together. When we have faith, we can see sin for what it really is, as an offense and affront against our Savior. We can strongly fight temptations to sin. We can be firmly dissuaded of tempting others to sin, looking, of course, to our Savior as our guide, as our example. When we have faith, it gives us the power to confess and repent of our sin because we know that there is forgiveness for us in our Savior's blood. We know that for a fact, by faith. When we have faith, it allows us to freely forgive others the sins they commit against us. We know they're forgiven. We know we're forgiven. Our forgiveness of others must begin by knowing for sure that we are forgiven. When we have faith, above all, when we have faith, even weak faith and a strong Savior, a mighty Savior, he can do mighty things through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to cry out as the disciples did on this day so long ago, please increase our faith. Increase our faith. Help us understand. Help us believe. Help us to follow. Your forgiveness is so astounding. Sometimes it's just unbelievable. So please help us believe. Help us trust. Help us cling to you as our Savior. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.